Welcome to the 1130 service of North Richland Hills campus of our church. We have two other campuses in South Lake and West Fort Worth. And I'm thrilled especially that you are here for the very first teaching in a new series we've titled Life Hacks. And I think you'll get more out of each message if you'll process it after you hear it. And the best way to do that is in community. I'm going to create discussion questions for every sermon And you can go to our website, go to the sermons page or the leader's resource page, and you can download the questions and then talk about them with your family or in your small group. It's so easy, as Chris mentioned, to get into a small group. Just go to guest services and let us help you there. But I think what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, you're going to find to be incredibly relevant to our time and our culture. And so I hope you'll have some important conversations with other people. Because we live in a time where it's really important to know how to life hack. Now, what's a life hack? A life hack is simply an innovative and creative and resourceful way to deal with an everyday problem. The term showed up in our vernacular in the mid-2000s, but we've been life hacking forever. Think duct tape on steroids. It's just a way to solve everyday problems in a creative way. For example, you're at your desk and you're tired of all the pile and the tangle of cords. Here's what you do. You take some paper clips and put them on the edge of your desk. You put the cords inside. Order is restored. Simple life hack. Or you want to fill a big bucket with water, but it's too big to fit under the faucet in your sink. Go to the broom closet and get a dustpan. You put the dustpan in the sink, you fill up your bucket, life hack. Or have you been awakened in the middle of the night because your three-year-old has rolled out of bed again? There's a simple solution. Here's what you do. Go get a little noodle from the pool, stick it under the sheets. Your baby stays in bed all night. You get a lot of sleep. Life hack. Or we've all dealt with the frustration of buying a pizza, and by the time we get it home, it's already cooled off. So here's what you do. You put that box over on the passenger side, and you turn on your seat warmer, and it stays warm. Now, the problem with this life hack is you have to buy a $40,000 car, but that's a small price to pay for good pizza. Wouldn't we all agree? Or we've all had the problem of being hungry while we're trying to get some work done and getting up and down for snacks is cumbersome and not productive. What do you do about it? Do you own a hoodie? Here's what you do. You put that hoodie on backwards (laughs) and you've got a life hack that covers a multitude of sins. So there is such a growing popularity of searching for these creative ways to handle everyday problems that there's now a TV show on the True Channel called Hack My Life that you can watch. There is even a new version of the Bible now called the New Life Hacks Bible, Practical Tools for Successful Spiritual Habits. And the reality is, as a disciple, we do need to learn to think resourcefully and creatively as we navigate upstream in a downstream world. In other words, we are living increasingly in a culture that is apathetic and sometimes even hostile to values that we care a lot about. 
And this should not surprise us because Jesus told us to expect this. When he sent his disciples out on mission trips, he would say, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Now that metaphor makes it clear, don't expect there to be a lot of popular public opinion about you and what you're teaching. So Jesus said, you're going to have to be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. In other words, I, I don't want you to be a violent people, an angry people. But you're going to have to be shrewd. You're going to have to be discerning. You're going to have to be resourceful as you navigate life that wants to flow downstream. How do we hold on to our godly principles in an increasingly ungodly culture without coming across as a bunch of obnoxious jerks? This is not a new problem. And what we're going to see is that there's a guy in the Old Testament named Daniel who was a genius life hacker. And he's going to show us how to live out our faith in a culture that is out of step with the will of God. So if you have a Bible with an Old Testament or if you have a phone or a a laptop, Open it up to the book of Daniel and find the first chapter, and let's start reading. And the Bible says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, now, by the way, from now on, I'm going to call him Neb, okay? Because I still write out my sermons, and Nebuchadnezzar is too hard to write and spell. So Neb, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So, if you don't know a lot of Old Testament history, let me take just a second and provide some context. So, some of you watched a movie last weekend where Charlton Heston led the Jews out of Egyptian bondage. And they went into a land called Palestine, and they formed a nation called Israel. Now, that nation existed for a couple of hundred years, and then they had a civil war and divided. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom had a succession of evil kings, and God finally punished them by sending the world power called the Assyrians. And in 721 BC, they were totally wiped out and disappeared from the story of world history. The southern kingdom, though, lasted longer because they had some good kings, but they were in a bad streak. A streak of rebellion. And so God is going to use a world power called Babylon to punish them. Now, there are going to be three deportations in the history. The very first one that is what we're going to read about in a moment when they took Daniel. Ten years later, they're going to take some more exiles, including a prophet called Ezekiel. And finally, ten years later, in 586 B.C., They're just going to wipe out Judah and take everybody captive. But we're going to study the first time they came. In 606 B.C., Neb came, and we're going to find out that even though he thought he was in control, this was all the plan of God. You see, in those ancient times, you didn't divorce politics and religion. 
So if one nation conquered another nation, the world would have said that's because their gods are the stronger gods. So when Neb comes to Jerusalem, walks right into the temple of God and takes sacred articles and puts them back in the temple of his God, everybody would have said that's because Babylon's gods are bigger and badder than the God the Israelites worship. But the sacred author says, no, that's not what's going on. He attributed Neb's victory to God's sovereignty. He clearly said the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. One translation says, the Lord gave Neb victory and permitted him to take the articles. And it's not just that God ordained the defeat of Judah. He foreordained it. Now, what I mean by that is that God announced a long time before it happened, it was going to happen. There's a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. He was a prophet. And he went to see another king of Judah before Jehoiakim. His name was Hezekiah. Let me show you what he said. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors that have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. In other words, God, a long time before it happened, said it's going to happen. And keep reading, some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. He's talking about Daniel and his friends. You see, when God judges, he always starts with his people. God will judge his people before he will judge people that are even more wicked. He allows things to work against us because ultimately God is for us and he's trying to bring us to repentance. But it's really hard when God judges a community or a nation because you can get caught in the backwash of God's judgment over sins you didn't personally commit. And that is where Daniel was. Let me show you. Let's read starting in verse 3. The king ordered Asphanes, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family. Remember, that's what Isaiah said would happen. From the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some of from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So every one of them were given names after the gods of Babylon. You see, what Neb is doing is he's diminishing the future of Israel by taking their future away. He's going to take their best and their brightest. He's going to capture the next generation. He's going to teach these teenage boys Babylonian language and literature and lifestyle and what he's going to get back is loyalty. 
So he's going to take three years to train them to serve in Babylon. So they changed Daniel's name. His mommy and daddy gave him the name Daniel. That means God is my judge. But he became known as Belteshazzar, which means Bel, B-E-L, was the God of Babylon. Bel protects my life. But that wasn't the greatest indignity. Remember that Isaiah said they will become eunuchs? That was the custom in that day. That when you took captive to serve in the king's court and around the king's harem, you castrated the young men. That's why you never read about Daniel or any of his friends having family. Now put yourself in Daniel's place. For sins that you didn't commit, you're taken to a foreign land, forced to serve a pagan culture, deprived of the possibility of ever being a husband or a father. Would you be bitter? I'd be bitter. I'd be angry at life. I'd be angry at my neighbors for their sins. I'd be angry at the Babylonians for what they did. I'd be angry at God for letting it happen. And that's why it's so stunning when you read the book that Daniel has such an amazingly positive attitude about his life and where he is. He is going to spend the rest of his life Faithful to God, helpful to his friends, useful to his government. You're going to hear me say this over and over. Daniel served God in Babylon. And Daniel served Babylon for God. We're going to see Daniel become a valued Member of a society that has values he doesn't personally embrace. Now this is so critical for our time because this is the world we're living in. Where more and more as Christians we've got to understand how are we going to navigate life in a culture that doesn't endorse all our values. That doesn't advocate all our beliefs. How can we live in this world and not just survive, but even thrive? Now, historically, we've taken one of three positions. One position is just to pull away. And we're going to form a little Christian club and have as small amount of contact with the culture as we possibly can and protect ourselves from infection. We're just going to pull away. Other Christians say, no, we're not going to pull away. We're going to push back. We are going to declare culture war. We are going to scream. We're going to picket. We're going to protest. We are going to rant. And we're going to stand up for God and take this country back. And then others, they don't pull away. And they don't push back. They just give in. They say, it's just too hard. And so we just become... The kind of Christians that have this superficial veneer of faith that lets us blend in with everybody because it's just easier to float downstream than always feel like you're swimming upstream. Now, people, there has got to be a better way to live in Babylon. 
And what Daniel is going to show us over and over is that we do not have to be like to be liked. It's not either or. We can hold on to our deeply held convictions and values and still be respected and appreciated by a culture that doesn't hold those values. Too often the church has taken an antagonistic attitude toward culture. We use this warfare language like it's almost our mission to wipe them out instead of win them to Christ. As if any success of the ungodly means the godly have failed. And yet, God put Joseph in Pharaoh's court to save Egypt. He assigned Daniel to serve in Babylon. You read the Gospels in the book of Acts and you see soldiers and city magistrates and municipal officials come to faith in Jesus even as they serve a wicked world system. So here's the question. Is it possible to be a blessing to the culture without believing everything the culture is selling? And Daniel says yes. He's going to teach us some life hacks for how to thrive in Babylon. So I want to read the rest of the chapter because there's some incredible principles we're going to glean. So follow along with me starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Then the king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had pointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Okay, now do you hear what you're saying? Teenage boys are asking only for vegetables for supper. How amazing is that? And then he says... You compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is brilliant. A man who is valued by a culture whose values he doesn't buy. So notice four life hacks for how to thrive in Babylon. Here's the first. It's so important. We need to choose battles that really matter. 
Because just as interesting to me as the stands that Daniel and his friends take, and we're going to see they're willing to take stands. They're willing to put their life on the line. But it's also interesting to me the stands they don't take. Daniel did not protest changing his name. And that's a big deal. Daniel didn't refuse to learn a new language. Daniel didn't skip class on the day when they taught how to use the occult and the stars to interpret visions and dreams, which the Hebrews were forbidden to do. But he still went to school. Daniel didn't announce there is no way I'm ever going to serve that pagan king. Daniel didn't treat his captors as enemies. He didn't try to impose his values on them. And he didn't expect them to live by or promote any other values but their own. Daniel wasn't shocked and upset that Babylonians thought and lived like Babylonians. He didn't go looking for a fight. But he did predecide where he would draw a line. And for Daniel, that was supper time. It says that he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And here's why. Because in their day, you would take the food for the king's court. And the first thing you would do is you would put it on the altar or the idol to the king's gods. And then you would take it and put it on the table. And everybody that came to that table were publicly expressing their loyalty to the king's gods by eating the king's food. And Daniel said, I can't go there. Daniel said, I don't mind that you worship other gods. I don't fuss if you want to teach me about your gods. I don't throw a fit if you want to name me after your God. I know who I am. But what I can't do is worship your gods instead of mine. He didn't take a stand for his own name, but he took a stand for God's. He didn't make it his mission to Judaize Babylon, but he wouldn't let Babylon compromise his own worship. You can change my name, but I can't change my faith. I can't change my God. You see, one very important life hack to learn when you live in Babylon is to pray for wisdom to know what lines to draw and what issues to drop. We shouldn't expect the world to advocate our Christian values. But we can't let the world pressure us into abandoning our values. And honestly, I think the world would pay more attention to the values we hold that really matter if we wouldn't argue so much about stuff that doesn't. Can I be more specific? Does it really matter if the little old man at Walmart says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas next December? Do we really need you to go on Facebook and rant about that? Does it matter whether Starbucks cups promote Christmas or not? We don't need your blog about that. In fact, here's a better question. Why are you spending $5 for a cup of coffee? (laughs) 
Let me get more controversial. Why is it the job of a secular school district to teach my children how and when to pray? That is my job. And I shouldn't expect secular institutions to advocate Christian values. And so, we need to ask God for wisdom to know when to stand and when to let it go. I know, I know I'm going to get emails for that last point, but that's okay. Here's number two. Hold your convictions graciously. Throughout the book, when Daniel takes a stand, and he will, they'll take a stand about not bowing to an idol. They'll take a stand about not praying to a king. They're willing to die for their convictions. But whenever they take a stand, they do it without being rude or obnoxious or disrespectful. They never rant. They never mock. They never whine about how their rights are being taken away. They hold their convictions without holding in contempt the people that don't hold them. So do you notice how polite he is? It says he asked the court official for permission. He's so respectful. He says, please test your servants. You don't have to be scornful to be faithful to God. There is no spiritual gift of being annoying. Learn this life hack from Daniel when you're in Babylon. If you want others to treat you favorably, treat them graciously. Listen to Paul. He told the church in Rome, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, the word everyone is very interesting. I looked it up in the Greek, and in the Greek, it means everyone. (laughs) We are to be as nice as we can be to everybody we can be nice to. Because our walk is always louder than our talk. Life hack number three. Oh, if we could just learn to trust the impact of an obedient life. One of the most important things to remember in Babylon is this. People are not convicted by how loud we shout, but by how well we live. What our Babylonian friends need to see is that the way we live works. We need to be able to say to our friends, we're going to follow the teachings of Jesus and just look at our lives. Look at our marriages. See how we manage our finances and how generous we are. Look at the way we raise our kids. Look at the way we show up at work and do dependable work. Look at the way we treat the poor. Look at our lives and see if our values don't work. That's what Daniel did. He said to the official, compare our appearance. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel said, all I'm asking is will you just let me live by my convictions and then just judge my life. Look at my life and see if my convictions produce a person that is actually a blessing to you. We don't need to rant about unrighteousness as much as we just need to practice righteousness. 
and let the world see a better alternative. Listen. Listen to what Peter says. Dear friends, you are like foreigners and strangers in this world. And that language is all through the Bible. We're always considered aliens in the world. He says, I beg you to avoid the evil things your bodies want you to do that fight against your soul. People who do not believe are living all around you and might say that you're doing wrong. Live such good lives that they will see the good things you do. And will give glory to God on the day when Christ comes again. I like how that reads also in the message. Friends, this world is not your home. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudice. There's a tension in the Christian life. The Bible says, I want you to live apart but I want you to live among. In other words, I want you to live a life that's not like everybody else, but I want you to live that life right in the middle of everybody else. I want you to be different, and I want you to be among so that they can see the difference. You can't have impact if you don't have contact. There's this amazing woman named Christine Kane. She's from the Hillsong Church in Australia, a wonderful teacher. First time she brought her daughter to America, they went to Walmart, because that's what you do when you come to America, right? And she told her little girl, I'll get you anything you want. So the little girl wanted a flashlight. And they got some batteries to put in it. And she was so excited she couldn't wait. She put the batteries in and turned it on right there in the store. And couldn't see anything because it was so bright inside. So she said, Mommy, can we go find some darkness? That night, God used those words. And prompted Christine to think about how she had been living a kind of protected Christian life. Can we go find some darkness. And it was that phrase that God used to inspire Christine to start one of the most amazing ministries in the world, rescuing young girls from the sex slave industry in Russia and Southeast Asia. She went and she found some darkness. Daniel didn't scream in the darkness. Daniel was a light in the darkness. He didn't pull away, didn't push back, didn't give in. Daniel said, I'm just going to stand out. By the way that I'm obedient to God. And don't you remember at the end of the chapter? Those four boys, by living by their convictions, actually were a bigger blessing to the culture. This is amazing that they were able to serve the king better because they honored another king first. And we need to remember that. That God is on the throne. The big thing of the book of Daniel is sovereignty. How can God be in charge if his people aren't where they're supposed to be? And over and over the book of Daniel says, don't think just because you're in exile that God is off the throne. Did you notice three times in the first chapter, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. God gave Daniel favor The Lord gave the boys understanding in all learning and literature. God is in control of who is in control. He's just as sovereign in Babylon as he is in Jerusalem. Now, we need to remember this. Because most 
of God's people spend most of their lives in Babylon. Have you ever thought about how much of the Bible is written to exiles? We need to give up this foolish myth that we are entitled to live in a nation and under a government that's going to be pro-Christian and pro-God and protect us and advocate for us. That has never been the story of God's people in history. We've always been the minority and we thrive best when we accept that. Here's what the devil wants you to do. To think that because you're in a culture that is often hostile to God and seems to be winning, that ultimately the culture is going to conquer. No. The current score is not the final score. God is on the throne. And over and over in Daniel, we're going to see that Babylon gets the most press. But the kingdom of God has the most impact. It still does. The kingdom of God doesn't get the front page of USA Today. But the kingdom of God is thriving. Don't forget that. The recent bulletin of International Missions Research from Gordon Conwell Seminary had some news that encouraged me. Did you know that right now, in 2016, more Muslims are coming to Christ than at any point in the history of the Islamic faith? Did you know that Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world? By 2050, 3.3 billion people on earth will name Christ. That's growing faster than the population growth. Did you know that about 16,000 people a day in China are confessing Christ? That by 2030, we may start considering China a Christian nation. Did you know that the Bible is still by far the most published, purchased, and read book in the world? And did you know? That you can still pray in school and say Merry Christmas as much as you want. We live in Babylon. And there's got to be a better way to live in Babylon than the ways we've chosen. Don't resent Babylon. This is our time and our place. Don't resemble Babylon. Instead, serve God in Babylon and serve Babylon for God. One more story. We've all wondered about these sweatshops in third world countries that produce so many of the products we buy, but are made by people that work in deplorable conditions. So Paul Borthwick, who's a global missions expert, was talking to someone in Sri Lanka saying, what should Christians do? Should we just boycott these products? And, and the Christian leader that said, don't do that. That doesn't help us. You Christians work for these companies and leverage your influence to see what these companies can do to make life better where we are. So he said that to a church in New York, and there was a guy in that church who's a buyer He buys jeans from a factory in Madagascar for $1 and then sells them on New York 5th Avenue for $400. And the people that make these jeans live in terrible situations. So the Christian buyer said to the factory liaison, 
Well, could we pay more for the jeans? And you could take that money, you could improve sanitation, uh, send the kids to school, give them better health care, better living situations. And the guy says, no, I can't do that because then I'd have to spend $4 a pair of jeans. And the buyer said, that's fine, do that. And they did. They still got their jeans, they still made a profit. But they were able to radically improve an entire village's welfare. Because a Christian found a way to serve God in Babylon and to serve Babylon for God. There's got to be a better way to live in Babylon. And when we find it, maybe we'll make life better for Babylon too. I want you to pray with me because we need wisdom. So God... First thing I'm going to ask is that you would deliver us from all this thinking of, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish I lived back when. I wish. No, God, help us to accept right here and right now is where we need to be. This is our time. This is our place. This is our city. This is our culture. We are right where we need to be, living right when we need to live for Jesus. What we need, God, is is courage. Courage to hold on to our values. What we need, God, is wisdom to know when to stand and when to let things go. What we need, God, is love. Love for our neighbors, no matter who they are or what they think or how they live. What we need, God, is faith. Faith that you're on the throne. Faith that your kingdom deserves our highest allegiance because only one kingdom is eternal and Jesus is Lord. So we ask for these things for Jesus' sake and for his name. Amen. May I ask you all to stand up. If you're on our prayer team, would you take your place? Now here's the deal. I totally understand that some of you today are dealing with things in your life that have nothing to do with this sermon. This is still your time. We want to offer you the gift of prayer and counsel and support. If you're struggling with living in Babylon, we want to offer you encouragement. And I think just like in every other service this weekend, some are ready to confess Jesus and get baptized. And to enter into the only kingdom that is eternal. Remember this, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. God is on the throne His purposes stand clear and firm. And the final score looks real good for his team. Let's worship him while you come.